This is series two of Lazarus Theatre Company's podcast, Spotlight On. A chance to turn the spotlight on the people behind the scenes. We'll meet the performers, the creatives, the collaborators, as well as those who inspire and provoke our work. Welcome to Spotlight On. In September this year, we received the very sad news that mentor, supporter and friend Ken Pickering had passed away. We first met Ken for our 2015 production of Christopher Marlowe's Tamburlaine the Great. Ken, in his capacity as chair of the Marlowe Society, encouraged, supported and championed our work. And so we would like to reshare our Spotlight on podcast episode with Ken, which was recorded in May 2021. We met Ken as a supporter. He became a friend. You'll be deeply, deeply missed. Thank you, Ken. Dukes, Artistic Director of Lazarus Theatre Company. And I'm Gavin Harrington Odedra, producer of Lazarus Theatre Company. Today we are joined by none other than Ken Pickering. We first met Ken when he was chair of the Marlowe Society for our production of Tamburlaine the Great. I always feel like I need to say that with some weight. Uh, that was back in 2015. Uh, Ken has successfully combined careers as being a playwright, a theatre director, academic, examiner and writer, with over 20 published plays, more than the great Marlowe himself, to his credit, and a similar number of books on aspects of theatre. He's also been a professor of theatre at universities on both sides of the Atlantic, and chief examiner for a number of major award bodies, including lead assessor for the Council of Dance, Drama and Musical Theatre, which we will come to drama training, I'm sure, as uh, it's very close to all our hearts. Ken, welcome to Spotlight On. Thank you, it's very good to be here. It's good to see you, good to see you. It's been a long time, uh, not only because of COVID, but just, <laughs> you're so well, busy all the time. <laughs> uh, somehow we've been hibernating, haven't we really? <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, first of all, tell us, uh, how have you been keeping creative? How have you been keeping engaged and hopefully fruitful during lockdown? <laughs> yes, I have. Well, I've been working with a theatre company called Reshape, on a, a production of a play called Gorbaduck, which is a, a very ancient play which Marlowe would have known about. And so I've been helping script that and we've been showing it as a, uh, an online piece and we've been doing it in support of the Rose Theatre on Bankside. So I've been doing that and I've been compiling two anthologies of great monologues and speeches, one from the early English stage in general, one from Marlowe, and I've been writing a book about musical theatre, so apart from that I haven't been doing anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that's probably the most fruitful lockdown uh, information we've ever had. Some people, <laughs> you know, a lot of people go, oh, we've just been doing a bit of reading, you know, a bit of re maybe well, a bit of gardening. Yeah, supplemented it with doing a reading, you don't have to go along with it, but yeah, it, it's been quite a creative time, to be honest, and I think to some extent the reading reinforces it, you know, and, and reflecting on what you've been doing over the previous years, you think, well, it's about time I distilled some of this information and thinking into something a bit more permanent, so that's really what I've been doing this year. Which is great. I, I, I Tell us a bit more about the these anthologies of speeches yeah. of, the, of the early modern, but also the Marlowe works. Okay, well, but I've always had this feeling that 
when people come for auditions, and I've done a lot of auditioning, and I've done a lot of examining of people who have to do speeches, you know, they very often choose Shakespeare. And uh, that's fine. But, you know, the whole of the early modern stage, as we now call it, is full of most wonderful material that people aren't exploring in anything like the depth I would like them to. So I had this idea, which is pretty quite popular, of, of compiling, first of all, an anthology of speeches, monologues, if you like, that's what the Americans like to call them, um, and supplementing them with a few performance notes so that people can get to know a whole variety of, of plays they've never encountered before. So that was the first thing. And then it seemed to me that really Marlowe, who is by a fairly long way my favorite dramatist, um, warranted well on his own, because for me, he is the most revolutionary of all playwrights in the early modern theater. And there are many unexplored parts of Marlowe's plays, which I think I felt like bringing to the attention of young actors. Uh, and so that book uh, was published fairly recently too. So those two are to try and inspire young performers to get to know some of this material and not to go to the predictable Shakespeare speeches, which I've heard for so many years and have got frankly quite bored with. <laughs> yes, there's, there's there's definitely been moments where we've been auditioning for something. What we tend to do is we we ask for texts that's not the actual play we're doing. Yeah. And one of the reasons we do that is we want to sort of see their variety. We also want to see what people's experiences are, or if they've done some research, or if they know a bit more about the the context. Because that's always always helpful. But we do tend to get a lot of the same. I think particularly for um, female speeches, actually. Although having said that, we have a lot of Edmund the Bastards, don't we? We get a lot of, you know, stand up. I think that's because people like shouting, swearing. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> we get a few. Yeah, you're right. We you're get right. The, 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 the trouble with, with Shakespeare is it's predictable. And of course, there's also, also the danger. But I, I remember falling into it myself because it was a very, very young actor, I mean, a very long time ago. I mean, I was completely in love with the recordings made by Laurence Olivier, you know, of Shakespeare. So, I mean, I. I, I can remember now to my shame trotting out uh, a false Olivier speech, you know, at an exam audition. Well, I'm terribly proud of it. And now I realize it was as bogus as hell, really, because it didn't have any kind of inner depth or, or real understanding. But it, that, that is the problem because Shakespeare is verset book, and so often people encounter it, then they, they think that's the best way to go forward, yeah. And we do have those moments where they they come in and you say, oh, what what would you like to do? And they say, um, Juliet yeah. or uh, Edmund or, you know, uh, uh, occasionally we'll get a hot spur and you go, oh, OK, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you, there is a sinking feeling when you hear uh, Margaret or the jailer's daughter. Oh, she's everywhere, that one. And, yeah. and there, there's a moment we go, oh, God. But this 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 book's going to be brilliant because there's so many fantastic, particularly female speeches. Yeah female characters in Marlowe that just have such tremendous complexity, depth, richness, that actually, I, I, I think you're totally right, that, that emerging art actors just don't experience them. No, they don't. And the, you're quite right. There, there's some fantastic female material. And so what I've done in the book, I've divided it obviously into speeches for men, speeches for women, and also speeches that can be done by uh, actors of either gender. Um, and 
looked at them and looked at their context, particularly. Yeah, I mean, I think the great problem really with Marlowe and Shakespeare is that there's still a sense that you're speaking poetry, and, and of course you're not, you're actually speaking dialogue, or you're having an inner dialogue. And um, so there's been far too much concern with language in a way, although it's very, very important. And there needs to be a, a much wider exploration of the psychological and meaningful nature of material. And that's something I learned when I was in the United States, where American actors uh, are much more psychological than British actors, to be honest. And they want to know all about subtext and you know, motivation and so on. Um, whereas our actors, to some extent, still are a bit voice conscious and a bit voice driven. There is that danger. So I've tried to provide performance notes that enable people to think on the, the real issues that they're discussing and sharing with an audience. And what a fantastic introduction. You know, so often I think with, with actors looking for audition speeches, they'll, they'll go and buy an audition book, you know, monologues yeah. for men or yeah. whatever it might be, take it off the shelf, read a bit and go, actually, I, I, wanna, I want to read the rest of the play now. Yeah. Not yeah. just so I've got to, oh, it feels a bit of a labour. Actually, it's a great way of introducing, and I've often thought that about the early modern canon, actually. If you ever want, one thing that we do as part of our social media thing is just pull up some quotes, some famous quotes from plays. Now, of course, with the Royal Shakespeare Company, you can go on there and there's plenty of quotes from each play. Yes, of course. But, it, yeah. but if you try and find a John Webster or a Dexter yeah. or, you know, yeah, a, a Decker, you're kind of lost, really. Where do, you, where do we go to? to uh, and that's actually, again, uh, I've, I've definitely heard from actors who have said uh, oh I saw that quote from the Duchess of Malfi how can I know a bit more or that quote from the White Devil or Revengers Tragedy whatever it might be how do I find out more hmm. and so actually any listeners out there going oh well I know the perfect resource for this get in touch because we'd love to sign please post people to that uh, not only young actors trying to find audition monologues but all actors trying to uh, widen their breadth of their skill their repertoire their understanding of it and and I have to say, when people come in and audition with a non-Shakespeare, I, I well, my face must say it all because it lights up and you think, yes, <laughs> we're cooking now, we're cooking, you know. Uh, it's so exciting. Well, in the last couple of years, you know, I've directed and really created and directed two pieces, one called Marlowe's Women, which was a programme literally of scenes uh, by Marlowe's Women and for a single performer, you know. And it was amazing, actually, how Lizzie, the actress who did this, and was discovering the most remarkable things in the dialogue of Marlowe's plays. I mean, people sometimes think Marlowe doesn't write well for women. On the contrary, he writes brilliantly for women. Um, and so that was amazing. And then now we're looking at this extraordinary play, Gorbadup, which, you know, is sometimes thought to be a play that Marlowe and Shakespeare were lampooning because it, it, by, by the time they were writing, it, it was an old-fashioned play. But there are moments of wonderful pathos in it and wonderful philosophical discussion, um, it, it, as if it was written yesterday in certain senses, you know. So it suddenly leaped out to you, and yet people tend to write it off as a, a funny old play you just learn about if you do history of theatre, <laughs> or stop. You know, and, and what I spend my life trying to do is to make people realise that theatre drama is not a branch of English literature. It's a living art form that must, you know, immediately take 
take wings in the moment of performance. That's mm. what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, my efforts this year have been rather shaped with that, partly because I've had time to think about this and reflect on what I've seen over many, many years, you know. Yeah, taking the opportunity. That's yeah, that's that's yeah. been it. Uh, and I, you just made me think there of going back to school, mm. and very often, you know, studying a Shakespeare, you would just pass the book around. You'd read a oh. paragraph. You'd pass it on. They'd read a paragraph. Well, no wonder we had no idea what was going on. We'd all had a bit of a go at a bunch of texts we didn't know, and of course, the teacher would give up and just put the telly on, and we'd just watch a video or something. Well, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I can remember sitting around in the school. Uh, with a, a book in front of me, and I, there I was reading, yeah, yeah, a pull to the bosun's whistle, row to you, bring your room if room enough, and, and, and this is the most action-packed scene in the whole of Shakespeare. <laughs> you know, there we were sitting around the room, just about managing to read it. I mean, it was ludicrous, really. Well, actually, if someone said to get off your feet and discover what's happening when you're trying to move around a swaying deck, I might have got somewhere with the dialogue. Yes, yes, and and just again remembering those teachers who did do that or took yeah. that well, or, remember, isn't it? absolutely I, I always remember going back to my old secondary school and and uh meeting my old English teacher Mr John Hope who's sadly no longer with us but um and I said to him when you took us to that production of Merchant of Venice you must have been absolutely mad because yeah. there was 30 of us all from the West Midlands packed onto a bus you took us to the theatre on your own. You, you must have been absolutely mad. And he said, yes, I th yeah, I probably was. He said, but you got it, didn't you? And I said, well, for the first time, yeah, I got it. And I said, what's that? What's, you know, thank you so much for that. And he said, well, if only one in 30 gets it, I've done my job. Yeah, yeah That's absolutely. a start, you know. Yeah. And I thought, how courageous he's taking this bunch of teenagers from the West Midlands who wouldn't sit down for five minutes if you'd obeyed us up and down the coach in the theatre, out the theatre. But there was just something about seeing it on its feet yeah. that just meant, oh, and, he, and I always remember him saying, but you got it, didn't you? And I said, I didn't get every word, but I no, think no. I understand what happened. And I, I, I was in it, you know. Well, what actually happened to me, strange enough, I've just given you that example of the Tempest. And as it so happened, my... Latin master at all um, decided he was going to direct a, a production of The Tempest when I was a sixth form. And so he took us to the theatre, the West End, to see John Gielgud as Prosper in The Tempest. Now it's interesting because a couple of years ago I was commissioned to write a chapter in the book about the history of directing, and I was allocated the chapter on Peter Brook. Uh, because I suddenly realized that when I was 16 or 17, I saw Peter Brook's production of of the tempest Fantastic. and i was absolutely hooked from that moment onwards uh now i've had chance to reflect on that experience i probably wrote something fairly central i don't know but the, the <laughs> fact is that these seminal moments they never leave you you know and it was actually now i come to think of it a very spare in a sort of kind of bleak production which was framed for its sort of minimalism and and deal good you know were there standing almost in the middle of a bare stage, just speaking the, these amazing words, but suddenly the, the theatre seemed to come alive because of the, the sheer emptiness of it. You know, it was so, so sparse. And it was very much, now I come to think of it, it was the, the zeitgeist of the 1950s when I was growing up because, you know, it was the year of sewage crisis and the Hungarian uprising and 
look back in anger and you know and rock and roll the first Elvis Presley film and, and all of that was happening at the same time it's a sudden feeling that something very disturbing in the air and something Shakespeare said that to me you know, and that was because of a great production and a great way of a school teacher of influencing yeah and, and thank goodness for them well yeah. I also do think sometimes I could blame him as well <laughs> of course, of course, of course. It's his fault where I am. <laughs> yeah, well, a lot of people blame me for all sorts of things. <laughs> but thank goodness. Thanks to, yeah, Mr. John Hope, bless him. Yeah. So tell us, Ken, how did you get into this whole thing then? You said you were, you, you know, we were a young actor and, yeah. you, and all of this. So how did you get into this? And uh, what was the sort of spark? Was Did it come from those theatre visits or yeah. how did it happen? Yeah, it, it, it certainly came, but it came from two things. Um, it came from my mother, who lost her sight quite early on, uh, and had the most prodigious knowledge of, of poetry, and used to read literature and poetry to me. And then, then she used to ask me to read to her, because she knew I was studying plays at school, and she loved literature so much. So I got to reading to her. Um, actually, she recovered her sight miraculously some years later, a bit. But that was the first thing. The second thing was, I mean, I did fall in love with Shakespeare totally at school. Uh, Macbeth and uh, The Tempest were the two plays I studied particularly, and I fell in love with them. So I would always wanted to be a teacher. Um, and so I decided to go and train initially as a teacher, but I was so keen on drama that I discovered a, a course that actually trained you as an actor and a, a drama teacher at the same time, which was amazing. Um, the strange thing was that for my family, because we were rather strict and Puritan, we were a Baptist family, um, the theatre was rather a no-no. You know? <laughs> yes. So I actually never told them I was a drama student. Uh, they thought <laughs> I was an English student. Uh, uh, the first real performance. I was I've never been quite sure what I wanted to do because I was also passionate about music. So I, I went as a, a student, I did drama as my first subject, music was second subject, learned the organ on a magnificent organ. And I've always loved playing music and that's why I've written a lot of musicals or libretti for musicals, because I love the conjunction of music and work. And I trained uh, as a, a drama teacher. And um, I was introduced one day, we were just given an exercise to speak uh, the speech, which is a dialogue between Faustus and Mephistopheles. I'd never, never read it before. I'd never encountered Barlow. And that was my kind of Damascus Road moment. Um, the, this interchange between Faustus and Mephistopheles just did something to me. It made my whole body tremble. I was, I was so enthralled by it as a way of, of Speaking. I'd never come across anything that moved me so much. I, it moved me more than Shakespeare. And so I vowed from there on that that's what I would do, uh, be involved in drama in some form. I and mean, what actually I did do was to go for four years as a primary school teacher teaching drama and music while I studied evening classes for acting diploma. In those days, it's a long time ago, because I'm very ancient now, um, <laughs> I, there were there were these evening classes leading to these drama diplomas. So I, you know, I acquired huge slices of the alphabet after my name by going to 
evening classes. And eventually was made head of grammar in a boys' grammar school, which was the only um, school actually grammar school in the country that had a drama teacher, head of drama. It was a revolutionary idea and uh, got very fascinated by the whole business and did lots of directing of school plays and so on. And then, uh, well, in those days, they were called teacher training colleges and then colleges of education. I managed to get a lectureship um, in, a, in a college of education where I was incredibly fortunate because the drama department there was entirely run by the disciples of a man called Stephen Joseph, who was the pioneer of drama in the round. And I was absolutely amazed. I also was on the same staff as a playwright named David Hampton, whose plays I, I always admire. And so, you know, I, I took every opportunity to direct plays, to teach about drama. But at the same time, there's one thing I should say in parallel um, to that. Um, at one stage in my life, the, the grammar school I taught in was in Dover. And Dover is very near Canterbury, of course, is where Dover is where Marlowe's mother was born. And Canterbury, of course, is where Marlowe was born. And, and I kept visiting Canterbury and I suddenly acquired a sort of love for, uh, for Shakespeare, Marlowe, Canterbury, all that sort of business, that package, you know. And so, yeah, I went over that. I mean, I, I did all sorts of things after that. But I, after these lectureships, you know, I, I did doctorates in theatre history and diplomas in elocution, as it used to be called once upon a time, and then in literature. Um, I directed the mystery plays in English cathedrals. I, I was part of a project where I was directing some of the best actors, Amarius Doring, Peter Farquhar, if you like this, in Canterbury Cathedral, in Birmingham Cathedral, in um, Great Malvern Priory and so on. And then um, I'm, I'm dovetailing things, but I set up various theatre companies, directed professional opera company for a bit, and then went off to the United States. I was offered a professorship in teaching, playwriting and uh, acting in an American university. And that was a fantastic experience. Yeah. So, well, that's a bit of my story. <laughs> <laughs> so, so at what point did you break it to your family what you were actually doing <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question when did, when did they cotton on i think on. they <laughs> got, sort of cottoned on i would, i've been corrupted forever uh, <laughs> uh, and i think they were quite pleased really my mum was all actually pleased of, of the plays that i was directing i think she liked them she liked plays it was just because the world of the theater was seen as rather decadent and and so on, and uh, I, I must say that I proved it to be not so. <laughs> I like to think so anyway, yeah. But I mean, I've always, because of my association with Canterbury, we've lived, I've now lived in Canterbury for a very long time, and I've visited it frequently, and I often keep coming back to it. Obviously, I've got particularly passionate about trying to promote Marlowe in Canterbury, and because of his association here, and, and the fact that there was a great deal of resistance to actually honoring him in his own city of his birth you know so that, that was very interesting and then i got involved with the Marlowe society who are an interesting group of eccentrics and 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 others <laughs> i'm two stints as chairman you know. it's it's fantastic and, and thank goodness that 
you know, I, I think you're totally right that this this idea of uh, theatre being decadent and, and actually something that a lot of um, actors over the last sort of 12 months, I think when we first went into lockdown, we we reached out to all the actors that we'd worked with and just said, yeah. you know, what do you need? What do you, yeah. uh, what can we do to help? And actually so many of them didn't have an answer because they said, we just feel, I mean, I'm putting these words on them now, but it felt like people were going through a grieving process or a loss yeah. and they didn't know yeah. what to do. Yeah. And and actually, it really made me uh, appreciate, and I I, I would uh, defend this completely now, in that that actually, in my experience, theatre people aren't decadent or self-obsessed right. or indulgent. In fact, they're pr incredibly selfless. Yeah, uh, I agree. Totally. Yeah. And, and not having the chance to do... Well, you might even go as far as say public service in, for them to to storytell, to be part of a community has been really painful for so many. So thank goodness we're, we seem that there's a glimmer of light in the horizon that they can start getting back to doing that thing. Yeah. Um, I, it's interesting looking at our, our friends in, in Europe and the idea of acting and theatre being a public service. I'm, I'm really fascinated about that. Almost civil servants. In, in... Well, that's right. I mean, I've had experience of that uh, really through strange. I think your, your family often influences a great deal. And, and my son uh, got a job in Poland and married a Polish girl. So I've become very interested in Polish theatre and I've been to Poland a lot uh, to work. In fact, I even did a, a workshop on murder in the cathedral in Polish, which was bizarre because I don't speak Polish, but it sounded wonderful when they did. <laughs> uh, but um, as it so happened, um, for 10 years, I was professor of drama at Kent University, as you know, which for some reason or other, um, well, it's because of the original head of department, it specializes in Polish theatre, in, in Grotowski and the whole world of Polish theatre, which I absolutely find wonderful because it's so uh, thoughtful, so powerful, so minimalist in a way, it's uncluttered. Mm. And yet, you know, it is a public service. You know, the, the, the way theatre is thought of there is it's a vital part of life. Mm. You know, it's not a, a, a luxury you add on. It's something that is domain to humanity. Really. Mm. And, and uh, I mean, uh, admittedly, since the fall of the communist government is rather different, but at one time in Poland, there were something in the region of 75 state subsidized theatres throughout the country. I mean, that is not the case now, but that legacy is still there. And there's a legacy of understanding drama as uh, really underpinning the very fabric of thought and what goes on. Hence, um, you know, Young Cop writing that famous book, Shakespeare, our contemporary. You know, that, that's, that's how they see it. It, it, it. This is not about some bit of archaeology. It's about living thought now. And that's what I, I think um, all theatre should be. Absolutely. Uh, the the, the theatre's become feeling uh, a space to debate. Yeah. Um, I've, you know, it, it, I often uh, lament in rehearsals, sort of going, you know, uh, saying to actors, you know, really ask the question, really pose the question. Yeah, yes. uh, one thing I do in rehearsal quite a lot is say, there's no such thing as a rhetorical question. Ask it. Ask, ask the question of the of the audience or of the, you yeah. know, the, of the room, the space, the society. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's one of those things I often lament because we know that contemporary audiences won't respond. No. So, so the the actor already knows in the back of the head. Well, this guy, this director keeps trying to make me, but I know they won't reply. But but actually, when an actor does it, 
when an actor really commits to it, they might not Elizabethan audience shout out or jeer or whatever we might think they might have done. But um, there is an acknowledgement. There's been a question asked. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And that just lifts that for me. That's the difference between we watch this old play and we clap at the end. Well, hopefully they clap mm. um, or it's a conversation. It's the start of the debate. It's it's something that you are a participant in rather than some sort of passive, passive voyeur, you know. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a communal experience. And that's something that's been wonderful about being based at Greenwich Theatre where yeah. the auditorium sort of wraps around at least the yeah. thrusts of the stage. Yeah. So it uh, feels very Elizabethan. It, uh, it is, it, it's a, a wonderful theatre. I, I mean, I've been aware of it for many, many years and I've always loved it actually. And uh, I've, I always thought it was a tragedy when it ceased operating for a while. And then now it's great that you, Reinjected life into it. At one time, it had a very, very distinguished theatre and education company called the Faustrip Company, you know, which was tremendous, uh, served a real purpose. But sadly, all of that service uh, was gone. I mean, I, I was chair for a long time of Channel Theatre Company, which was a theatre company based in the southeast. We were actually based like, literally on the English Channel, you know. But we toured all over the place. Um, about you know all sorts of bits of research required, like uh, how long can the great great British bottom sit on a village hall chair, for example? <laughs> is how long your production? Because we we got funding for touring touring village halls, you know. <laughs> and so you ask yourself quite some simple question like that, and then you say, but but it's wonderful that these things are there. Now that's a part of theatre which has, to some extent, been eroded, sadly, you know, in Channel eventually wound itself up. Just sheer exhaustion of constantly applying for net the next project grant, you know, yeah. after having had funding for a long, long time to do regular work. You know, but there, there's, there, there'll, there'll be new life. I'm sure out of this current situation, people like yourselves will, will, will find new ways of creating theatre. And as you've done with your reflection, having time to go back and go, actually, I'd better write some of this down, actually. I'd better put this together and yeah. do. And yeah. that's, that's been very much our thought over the last sort of 12 months is going, you know, what, what do we think the purpose of theatre is and how do we make that happen? And, and I think actually you've highlighted one of the, the biggest tasks is that project grant thing going from funding to funding, where, and maybe this is, these are things we're exploring. Maybe we have to become a, an MPO go for, uh, as a portfolio organization to give ourselves something sustainable to say, you've got three years to do this, but it's still three years. And in the life of an organization, um, we need to be thinking further than that. So that's that's something for us to scratch our heads and work yeah, out. It's it, um, it a debilitating prospect sometimes if you've got forever lasting, got to be scratching to get the next grant. You know, that, that is very, very time consuming. And, and I'm glad I don't have to do that anymore at the moment. <laughs> My next question was, would Ken, would you like to do one of our... <laughs> I'd rather not if you don't mind. <laughs> well, we'll, hold, we'll put that one even on. If, even if I pretended to be a Baptist or a Roman Catholic, I don't think I'd manage it.
Well, we, as I said earlier, we first met properly, really, on, on Tamblaine the Great in 2015. And uh, you joined One us. One of my for a... students was, was, I think, your, your assistant director. Almost. Yes, Josh. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And okay. um, you joined us as well for the post-show debate, which was chaired yeah. by uh, Terry Paddock. And hopefully yeah. we'll have a few yeah. more of those to come. Uh, uh, soon. Um, but one thing I always wanted to, uh, you talked a little bit about um, that experience with, with Faustus and uh, uh, Mephistopheles. Yeah. But why Marlowe? What was the thing that just... Okay. Yes. It's a perfectly reasonable question. Well, I think there are three things that particularly got me. One was the underlying philosophical aspect of all that happens in every one of his plays. He seemed, or to me, always to be asking questions about the meaning of being alive, what it means to be human, even if it means being hideously cruel. But it, he's always looking at what makes human beings human beings. Uh, that's the first thing, and I, I find that fascinating. Uh, the second thing is, I think his stagecraft, the way he uses a theatre, is incomparable. Um, whether it's uh, large numbers of people sweeping around big spaces, representing, you know, literally great battles, or whether it's individuals uh, or people hanging from battlements or whatever they're doing, I just think that his use of things like the aside of various levels of the stage, the whole sheer theatre craft of his plays are wonderful. And then thirdly, but it is thirdly, but still, it, I mean, is the language which is so dense with magnificent poetry. Uh, I mean, one could go on and on about this. I, I, I did once hear a, a talk at a, at a conference about Marlowe and Shakespeare, and as you probably know, there's all sorts of extraordinary things said about Marlowe and Shakespeare, but this chap said, I think Shakespeare was Marlowe's PhD student. And I think that's about right. I mean, I think whoever wrote the works that we attribute to Shakespeare really owes it to Marlowe, who actually implanted that ability to use that decasyllabic line and all those other things um, as a way of simulating real language. And the, the way in which this man can present, you know, the whole kind of dilemma of being alive within a single speech it is to me just miraculous. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, there, there are three things. Anyway. <laughs> I, I totally agree. There's, some, there's something, um, I think that's the first thing is it's dense and quite a lot of actors find that, um, I think they find Marlowe a little bit harder because they're less familiar actually sometimes. Yeah, I think you're right there. Whereas they can, you know, you can whack on a DVD of Macbeth and sort of get the idea and you've seen yeah. Anthony Scher or, you yeah. know, whoever it might be. And, and But with, with Marlowe, there's a, there's a couple of recordings and, and actually that's something we need to sort out. We need more filmed versions of yeah. archiving oh. these things. Not, they don't yeah. have to be definitive productions, but they can, we need more, far more performance history. But when they actually get through, and I always think sometimes there's a moment in rehearsal where it's almost like they break through the wall and then yeah. they go, oh my God, it's all here. That's right. it's, it's all, and I often, I often talk of the text a bit like sometimes some speeches need a pneumatic drill to get in. Mm -hmm. Some need a light coating or dusting. Mm -hmm. Some just need a washing down, but all the gems are there. And it's so blooming wonderful. You must still get this, Ken. When someone 
realizes and sees the gems, the things in under the mud. Yeah. Oh, it's it's still, and that's where you know you've still got the bug. I, I I've been doing a bit of online teaching, and and when a student just boom, you can see their light the light bulbs go on. Yeah. And with Marlow, it's a big light bulb. It's a floodlight. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, boom. Well, uh, some years ago, you know, we did a thing called Marlowe 450 in Canterbury, celebrated the 50th anniversary. And we had the fourth monkey company came down here and did, I think, all the Marlowe plays virtually uh, in some form, including one in, in the crypt of the cathedral, which was amazing. But I was asked to work with the company for a bit on, on the text, you know. And I discovered that if you just gave them the exercise of finding <laughs> insults that People hurl at each other from the check. They, I said, right, just find an, a, a phrase that's insulting and hurl it at each other. And it was like throwing missiles around the room. They, they, it could be so organic, this mm. this language, you know. Um, but I mean, obviously, you asked me why Marlowe again. I've always had this fascination, of course, with his association with Canterbury, and, and that is interesting. Partly because um, there, there's kind of ambivalence towards Marlowe in, in Canterbury, or, they, or at least there was. I don't know who he's now, but at one time, you know, there uh, there is this Marlowe Memorial, which is a bizarre structure because it shows four different act, famous actors in four different roles, none of which they ever played. In <laughs> I mean, the research there. And yes. it, it, the Monument itself was unveiled by Sir Henry Irving, the great you know, actor, who gave this wonderful speech about Marlowe, but had never ever performed Marlowe ever. <laughs> you know, and, you know, it, this is completely strange. You know, mm. and so I mean, I, I found that starting point. What kind of player is this that its own the birthplace of this man cannot acknowledge him with people who actually knew about him? Very fascinating. So we did go to some covering country to try and set up a, a, a Marlowe Centre. Of course, we've got a Marlowe Theatre, which is um, a joke in a way because it's usually a home for big musicals. I mean, that's not being rude about it. But, you know, they, they don't, although some Marlowe has happened there, but they, I actually remember in country where the old Marlowe, we've been through, I think we've got through three Marlowe theatres now. The first, <laughs> one I, yeah, the first one I went to was when my wife was pregnant with our son and they did Tamberlin. <laughs> where it's a blooming long play to wait while you're well, Yes. <laughs> and he very nearly was born in Tamberlin. He didn't quite make it, um, but perhaps that's why he's also a uh, <laughs> Very literary character, <laughs> but, but I mean, they did used to do things in repertoire, you know, way, way, way back, and it sort of suffered a bit of a decline. So it made a bit of a kind of campaign to reinstate Marlowe in his own city. Mm -hmm. um, it's been successful to some extent, you know, and the Marlowe Society, because it's now an international society, um, also we've got people from all over the world, and ironically now. We're meeting these people for the first time because we're all zooming, you know. So it's bizarre to think that we've now got, you know, overseas representatives, we have the Marlow Society of America, that uh, we have representatives in Scandinavia and Poland and so on. You can now meet these people and chat Marlow, which, which is 
fantastic in that sense. But you know, there's a long way to go, I think. In, mm. Well, I, I was always um, struck, of course, when you, you know, Shakespeare's got a whole town really after yeah. him and, and I was always struck and you know we're, we're based in Greenwich uh, not yeah. far from where Marlowe's remains oh, are yeah. meant to be to be yeah. sort of scattered, yeah, yeah. I suppose and I and I I sort of actually stumbled across the churchyard by mm. accident and um but I find it deeply moving just seeing the little plaque yes it's well so it's not it, it's not little actually it's quite big well, but you yeah, know it, it, it's, it's pretty minimal in a sense isn't absolutely it? yeah and and just that wonderful line from the end of Faustus uh, uh, about the the branch not able to to grow straight before yeah. you know it was cut yeah. before it was able to go straight but there was just this and I anyway I was there and I was in rehearsal clothes because I was on the way to a rehearsal room and the warden of the churchyard obviously thought I was looking suspicious and uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah, came yeah. over and, and chatted and um and we ended up sitting on the bench for about an hour talking and 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 the warden was saying we get people from all over the world come and it's very moving because yeah. and i said and, and exactly that really that shakespeare has this whole living um yeah a, a, a shrine if you like yeah because of the rsc yeah and all of that yeah and all the stuff around whereas marley sort of Blimey, and, and the fact that he's there or thereabouts, I think, is the wording. Just think, this is so so sad. And how do we how do we how do we do something about that? And I think it is about honouring that to start well, I with. Think so. I mean, there are, there are all sorts of things. I mean, as you know, I'm sure you're aware, there are people who think that. Well, I actually think that Marlowe probably didn't die at Deptford, but who actually spent the rest of his life in probably in exile in Italy. That's my own belief. But I mean, I'm, I'm not going to push that because for, for often the corollary of that is, and of course, when he was there, he wrote all the plays of Shakespeare. Well, I, I don't actually subscribe to that. Although <laughs> I have to say, I think the one of the reasons why I don't subscribe to that is I think some of Shakespeare's plays are so bad, they can't possibly be by Marlowe. Oh, the cats amongst the pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we did some years ago at the those who've been Kingston have a, a, a Marlowe Shakespeare conference where all the great and the good were there, the big, the really big noises, you know. And I really, there were moments where I thought the roof was going to fall in on us <laughs> because there was so much acrimony, which I just don't subscribe to. I, it's a waste of emotional energy. And, you know, but, but there is some very interesting new scholarship about the possibility of Marlowe's survival and the fact that that, that depth of death could have been a fake death and you know strange enough I, I've got a friend who works I discovered for MI6 I didn't realize he did for many years and I was talking to him about fake deaths and Marlowe and he said no, well that's not a problem he, you know we've been handling that forever fake deaths so, I mean there's nothing you're not really actually saying anything remarkable mm -hmm. that someone had a fake death and um, was spirited away and death for there you are the boat right on hand get me to the the French mainland in no time, and and yes, you could well indeed end up in um, in Italy. And and one of the things that you know we're looking at in the Mars at the moment is some new research about the possibility. Anyway, it's only a possibility that Marlowe did indeed uh, write some plays in, in in Italy. But we shall see that. What to say? Well, not not to stir the conspiracy pot too much, but a student did ask me a week or two ago. Oh, isn't that I mentioned Marlowe's? Oh, isn't that the one that was the spy? And and they said they reckon he could be Shakespeare. And I said, um, I don't know. 
and I, I'm not into conspiracy theories necessarily, so I don't, but I don't know. But you know what? I have a feeling he's such a great storyteller that he'd probably like the stories. <laughs> so actually, you can keep going with your conspiracy theories because in, in a way, that's what keeps the spirit of, yeah. of Marlowe alive. Yeah. So I, I thought that you you run for the hills with your conspiracy theories. I think there's lots of a way of inside. And, and yes, I'm sure he was a spy because the records of his absences from Cambridge Mm. Uh, are well, now well documented. And one scholar has analysed all the times he was away when he should have been doing his degree. And, um, <laughs> what was he up to? Well, uh, tobacco, to? And, tobacco and boys, perhaps. Um, if, you look, yeah, if you look at some of the events in European history at the time, which were very much important to uh, Royal family. I mean, obviously, the great problem was that there was no success with Queen Elizabeth, so, and also that you know Queen Elizabeth was a Protestant. So, two terrible things. You know, there's a whole of Catholic Europe wanting to impose Catholicism on 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 Elizabeth, and then you've got the problem of Elizabeth refusing to have a child. So we didn't know who the succession was going to be. So there's all that going on, and so she was always in peril for one reason or another. So. He certainly did need a, a huge secrets network to support. Um, so you can, in fact, assume that someone as bright as Marlowe was the kind of character who would indeed be able to infiltrate uh, Jesuit colleges and all the sorts of things that you think he did. But certainly, he, he's got a, a huge knowledge of uh, languages and things that are quite obvious, you know. But yeah, yeah, you do have to disentangle all that from the quality of the plays. Which, as far as I'm concerned, what, what really matters. But there, there's a lot of fascination. And, and I mean, in America, there is actually a society called Marlow Lives. He's in Texas somewhere. Blimey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're talking about the spy thing. It always yeah. makes me think of Titania. Yeah. She says to Oberon, she says something along the lines of, but I know that thou hast stolen from fairyland. I know, knowing meaning intelligence. And mm. I always think that's very, very, there's something really wonderful about this. Queen Elizabeth, I know what you're all doing. It's quite thrilling and quite frightening. Yeah. Um, yeah. One thing that I always notice, Ken, and I, I, you may agree or disagree on this one, but I always think, you know, I'm asked occasionally, what's the difference in Marlowe and, and Shakespeare? And I always often get the sense that Marlowe wants us to see it and Shakespeare maybe just wants us to hear so there's something sensorily different about it and I wondered what you well firstly whether you agree or disagree and obviously I will I will heed whatever you say but I just wondered what do you think the main cha challenges are when we're presenting Marlowe in performance um, what would you would you agree it's about seeing things or hearing things but but also what do you think are the challenges of, of presenting yeah, well plays? I three major, I, I keep doing things in threes, that, that's the trinity in me anyway. Um, <laughs> I think the first thing about Marlowe, the, the problem he presents is the length of some of the dialogues and speeches. I mean, they are massive. If you look at them, and I noticed this when I was compiling this book of monologues and speeches, you know, these are of a massive size. Mm. And so it's sustaining the energy and the attention span of an audience. You know, I mean, let's face it, Strindberg said, the theatre is for modern man in a hurry. <laughs> but you can't be modern man in a hurry when you're listening to Tamberlin. <laughs> um, really, you know, you've got to be pretty ruthless. Mm. 
so but that's the, the first challenge is the sheer scale of the language, the, the, the sheer length of it. I mean, for example, there's a, a, a speech in Dido, Queen of Carthage, where they're just reflecting on what has happened. Well, it, it's, you know, it's several pages long. Now, oh, I, re I remember that. rehearsing that, Ken, yeah. and I can totally, totally agree with you. It's yeah, a long are, one. These are almost indigestible. Mm. And, you know, the fact is, we live in a new age. I mean, my great-grandparents were strict Baptists. They would happily listen to an hour and a half sermon on a Sunday. Now, if you go to church and the, the preacher preaches for 20 minutes, people would start getting fidgety. <laughs> you know. So yeah, we, we live in a much more compact place. That, that's the first thing. I think the second thing is the sheer scale of the, the, the physical movement of the thing. It, it's as if the whole thing is swarming over a vast arena. And I find Shakespeare more economical than that. Mm. Shakespeare is more delicate in structure. The, the scenes often shorter. And it, even, the, even the big battle scenes in Shakespeare go to boom, 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 boom. You, you, can, you can go on and off. I mean, obviously they're written for people going around and in and in that entrance and out that entrance. Whereas Marlowe, it's as if great armies are sweeping across continents, you know. <laughs> It's a different feeling for me, anyway. Mm. And then I think thirdly, there's the the sense, yeah, that that in in Marlowe you are you are listening to rhetoric in a way. Mm. It's as if you are, I don't know, you're attending not only a theatre to theatrical event, but also a lecture sometimes. Mm -hmm. yeah. And this is difficult again for modern audiences because we're not good at being lectured to. Um, whereas in Shakespeare, these are more delicate fragments, you know. Now, you could argue, if, if we really believe, if anyone actually believes that actually Marlowe wrote Shakespeare, that, you know, that the, the suffering that he endured changed him so that he wrote more economically. I mean, there are, when people say, oh, but nothing like Shakespeare, nothing like Marlowe, nothing like Shakespeare. I say, yeah, but people do change in their lives, mm. you know. But I'm not trying to reinforce their argument, but there, there are, I think, very considerable differences. For me, the problem with Shakespeare uh, is very often actually knowing what's going on. Um, there are so many plays, and I'm sure you've directed more than I have of these, but there are so many plays, very often comedies, where the opening scenes are sort of short, short, sharp exchanges, which is supposed to explain the plot. And to be honest, I sometimes sit there and I think I've not the faint idea what's going on. And I'm prepared to admit that as a as a so-called professor of drama, I've sat in the door, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, and to be honest, when I go, I go and see because one of the things I now have to do is to go around drama schools and dance schools as an inspector, seeing the quality of their training. And, and I sometimes think, you have no clue what you're talking about, have you? It's worrying, you know, it really is. But but that's because it's so complex. Mm. If you look at, you know, look on the page, it's a, whereas usually with the Marlowe's big slabs, you know, look at Shakespeare's little bits and pieces. And I suppose then with the big slab of text, then it's it's it really is that 
actor has to have the energy yeah, and sure. scale to, it, to well, I was about to say to get through it, but yeah. more than to get through it, to, to pull it out and play, exactly. Yeah. And I wonder whether that's something about, um, well, well, we'll maybe we'll talk a bit a bit about training in a moment, just just that actually very often I, I, we find that actors that have become exhausted quite quickly in the play. And I, I, I actually, you've just made me think, yes, there is an economy maybe in Shakespeare of in, out, particularly with, with um, lengths of scenes, at least yeah. it's less likely to get bored, but it really, but I do think it puts the power back in the actor's hands when they've got the slab. The actor then is having that conversation with the audience, particularly at the beginning of the play. I agree with you. I mean, I, I enjoyed enormously directing um, As You Like It in the States. I, I, I was asked to direct that play. And of course, Rosalind in As You Like It has more lines than Hamlet does in Hamlet. It's an enormous role. Mm. Um, and that I found that very fascinating, dealing with a, a, a performer who was having to in encapsulate this vast amount of language and all sorts of complex language, you know. So there are Shakespeare plays that make that demand, and, and the, mm. the sustaining of the energy is you're quite right, is, is the key thing there. How how does Robin keep all that going for that long amount of material that she has to learn? You know? Now that fact found it very fascinating because that was one of my experiences of directing in an American theatre where the uh, performers were very psychological in their approach to things. But I'll tell you what did actually stand, stunned me, which we had auditions um, one week, and um, I found my Rosalind pretty quickly. I thought, yeah, you're the person. He showed up at the first rehearsal word perfect, off the book. I mean, <laughs> a week later, unbelievable. Oh, I mean, yeah. I've never encountered that in, in the UK, ever. I just did not be sideways. <laughs> well, that's that's it. Uh, we often find that the the actors with the smallest amount of text are the last ones to be off book. Yes, actually. oh well, it was actually true of that play. Yeah, you sort of go, hang on a minute. Yeah, <laughs> but I suppose the lines. Yeah, I suppose the pressure's off a bit, though. I suppose is well, they think I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. Yeah, you know, right? If you know you've got a huge thing, gird up your loins, as it were, and. In you go, mm. you've got into it. <laughs> Ken, what's, I'm going to put you on the ropes a bit here. Yeah. What's your favourite Marlowe play or character? Okay. Well, my favourite Marlowe play is undoubtedly Dr. Kowski's. And um, I think he is my favourite character as well. Um, I mean, I don't sympathise with him. I think he's a foolish man in public. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and I wouldn't advocate selling my soul to the devil to anybody, but <laughs> what I do find about him is that his, his intellectual qualities, which I've, I've always been fascinated by, I don't want to sound like an academic snob, but I mean, I, I do value literacy and all those things. Um, the way in which he kind of uses his intellect to interrogate the world and the universe and to try to rebel against the idea of, of guilt and so on. I, I do find it fascinating. And I personally find his exchanges with Mephistopheles to be the most rewarding scenes of any drama I've ever been involved in. And I mean, that I go back to where I started. That's where I fell in love with it when I was casting. 
Faustus as a drama student. And I thought, good God, this is amazing. And these kind of the way that Mephistopheles responds in in the some of the uh, exchanges about the idea of hell are just amazing. And you know, for me, there's this moment where Mephistopheles says, you know, why this is hell, nor are we out of it. And I think to myself, yeah, I've been there. You know, hell is not some fiction that we do create it very often. Yeah. We um we we actually spent last week with uh, Faustus and Mephistopheles. We did a bit of R and D for oh. a perspective production of Doctor Faustus, and we we looked at that scene quite heavily. And and uh, yes, it it's actually quite chilling. Yeah, it is. Uh, there is what does it what does he say? There's something along the lines of there's heaven, and everywhere else under it is hell. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. Everything below the heavens, and and you, it did, and the way that um, the actor played that and just left a nice, nice what I would call a pin to pause after yeah. that full stop was quite shuddery. You know, you thought, yeah. oh, this is. Oh, it is, it is. And, and when he says, "Thinkest thou who you know saw the face of God and not you know tormented with ten thousand hell for being deprived of everlasting bliss," yeah. you know, just. The, the idea, don't you understand, you know, that I, I once saw the face of God and now I'm deprived of it. Don't you think I'm in hell? You know? Yeah. Um, so pain, isn't there? The, oh, the words, the, the pain. The that, way that works together is just remarkable. And I always, I think there's something interesting as well about Faust's in that, um, as a character, that it would be very easy, perhaps, to make him a contemporary symbol of everything that... The liberal left sort of despises yeah but actually uh one thing that i thought was a bit more fruitful last week was when we treated him almost like an everyman mm. and and so that we, we we didn't put on a certain type of phone that he used or a certain type of suit or any of that and we just played with this idea that he was the everyman we could all fall in this into this thing oh, and absolutely. we all do yeah absolutely is it you say that because i mean my, my other favourite play is Every Man. <laughs> <laughs> I, I play Death in Every Man in Hereford Cathedral. Oh, you've been uh, typecast, Ken, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hardly a cheerful uh, version of myself. But yeah, um, I've always found acting in cathedrals are particularly interesting. I mean, I, I am the last English actor to have been murdered in the cathedral in Canterbury because I would play Beckett in murder in the cathedral in, in, in Canterbury Street. Uh, I'll tell you a funny story about that, if you like. Um, okay, so some years ago, they had the Lambeth Conference where all the bishops from all over the world from the Anglican Union come to Canterbury. And it was decided that they would do a production of Murder in the Cathedral, Elliot Burnley, which of course was written for Canterbury Cathedral in 1936. And actually, uh, we had some funding because I, my colleague at the University of Kent is Elliot College. So, you know, there's a big Okay, so um, I performed, and one night <laughs> the entire audience was made up of bishops and archbishops, <laughs> the entire audience. And then I had to preach a sermon. All these, all these bishops, and there's me preaching them, they're dear children of God, you know, I preached. <laughs> and then um, we decided that um, we weren't going to have any applause afterwards there would be no curtain call or anything so the play ended and um we just 
went away and got changed and quietly I stepped out into the precinct of the cathedral where all these bishops were still hanging around, you know. And there was a load of, a, a clutch of English bishops, you know, archbishops and things. And they looked at me in that sort of way, only English would go, no, no, no knowledge would. Then I went past a group of American bishops and they said, he is risen! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the difference is just incredible, you know. But anyway, that was an extraordinary experience. But in, in a way, um, what Eliot did was to, I think, borrow from every man and some of the productions they'd been of every man in cathedral, some of their technical not all, but you know, that that's my other great thing. You know, I, I've written this so-called standard book on the Canterbury plays. Because you know Elliot and John Maysfield and Dorothy Sayers and Christopher Fry, Laurie Lee, all wrote plays for Canterbury during between 1928 and 1940. There was always a Canterbury play. Um, sadly, it's ended now as a tradition. Although there was an attempt a few years ago to revive it, but that was a bit of a disaster. Thing. But you know, it, it's a very fascinating part of it, and the way all of these plays are kind of fed by morality plays like every man but also are in themselves a morality plays i suppose and they work in alternative spaces like the people you know which are fiendishly difficult in some ways because they're stupid and i you know you can well imagine <laughs> but some of the settings are fantastic you know? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I think there's something about that 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 um, we as an audience can sort of, I'm, you know, it's very easy to say that we have to see ourselves in the the actor or the character all the time. But actually, the the that contemporary morality story goes. We're we're all susceptible to this, or we all could be. And and again, going back to that line, we're all we are in this. Why this is hell? We, yeah. we sort of looked around the rehearsal room and sort of went yeah we sort of are aren't we and what we're going to do about that and that could be uh, politics that could be our personal oh, yeah. lives that could oh, be all of those things couldn't it yeah. Yeah. um but um we're running out of time but i must ask you about you've done so much work in uh training yeah. drama training yeah um and i wondered what you you thought your, your the, were the challenges for uh young or emerging artists wanting to train or going through training um, and what, what your thoughts were on the standards of training at the moment and and any advice to anybody thinking, this is something I want to go and do. This is yes. something well, to do. Well, what, what has happened really over the last, it's really happened in the last 25 years, is that all the training in drama schools has been, to some extent, uh, taken over at one level by the universities because people, to get the funding, people now get degrees in acting. I mean, when I was training, there was no question of, there were no drama degrees at all. Now uh, you get to know. So I, I act as consultant to lots of different universities, validating these courses. And I think one of the problems is there's a dichotomy between the nature of a university degree, which requires a lot of private study and a lot of um, reading and so on, and an actor tra training course, which must be essentially practical, or most of it be essentially practical. So I think what if I were looking to train as an actor, I would look at the the drama college I was looking for and look at the, the actual component of the training as to what extent it is theoretical, what extent it is practical. 
there are some, uh, I'm not going to tell you the names, obviously, because that would be very unprofessional, but have successfully, in my view, um, eradicated the need for lots of laborious bookwork, but have a, a genuine intellectual content in their practical training. And I think that's the ideal. See, what, what, we, what we're looking for is a thinking performer. That, that's mm, you know, mm. the reflective practitioner of the jargon. Um, and so th there's that. The other thing I would say, there's been a, a recent development in a number of places that are offering accelerated courses where you can do your degree in two years. In fact, I'm a consultant for one of the colleges that's doing that. Now, I think that's been a great idea because in a way, you know, you do all that work on your voice, for example, and then you forget it for six weeks, seven weeks in the summer. And you get out of practice, you go off and you earn your living selling hamburgers or whatever you do, you know. What I would say, get you keep yourself at peak condition like an athlete. Mm. And the way to do that is to look for accelerated courses. Uh, and there are some out there doing it really rather well. I, I think if you're looking around, you also want to look at the balance between the various areas. Um, my own particular interest now in training is in musical theatre, because it's the biggest single growing industry, as you probably realise. And unfortunately, all these sort of things like um, talent shows on the telly convince everyone they can be a musical theatre performer, because they can't, but they, they think they can. So you get a lot of a lot of musical theatre courses growing up, and again there, I think the important thing is that these courses are going to encourage you to be a thinking performer. So you know you actually, for example, I, I have one or two colleagues who work on lyrics of songs, which they insist that young actors perform as monologues before they even learn a single note of the music. Unless you actually inhabit the text, why are you going to bother to sing? Uh, and I've seen horror stories, I must admit, with the, uh, with the, of people who've got no idea what they're singing about or no idea what they're doing. In fact, I remember one audition I went to and the chap came out and sang, um, I have often walked down the street before, you know, song from My Fair Lady. So I said to him, um, you're singing that song. Um, where do you imagine yourself to be? And he said, on stage. I said, has it ever occurred to you you're walking down the street? Yeah. That's where you just are. An just an idea. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. I mean, oh, oh. You know, I mean, so, yeah, I, I think that the thing about training is, um, I think there's some superb training being offered. And I think it's kept at a very high standard by these university validations because they they breathe very hard on down the nets of these colleges. They really do. I mean, it's not easy. It's by no means a, a walk in the park getting your know, course validated by a university. But I think the important thing, as I said, is you look at a balance between the thinking processes and the doing processes. Mm. And also, I think it's absolutely vital these days that even if you okay, you're not after a lot of writing. Do some reflection, possibly in the form of writing, because if you're a young actor, you're going to one day have to write proposals, you're going to have to write program notes, you're going to have to write, you know, all sorts of stuff. 
And if you can't do it, your, your little theatre company you've set up with your friend or whatever it is you're going to do is going to be an absolute flop. You've got to have intellectual rigor, you know. So things like even acknowledging the proper writer of a play. I mean, I've actually seen students who've written about a play and haven't mentioned who the playwright is. You know, you'd be you would be amazed how often uh, you you know. You, and I've even seen program notes uh, of a performance where it doesn't even mention the name of the writer. You know, uh, just just things that yes. It's got to be rigor, I think. That. That yeah, I, you, know, that, you know, that's one of my favorite words, actually. I think the thing about, um, I, I think you're totally right about the balance of it. You know, there's something about rigor, there's something about discipline, there's something about focus. Yeah. That just give you the ground, just gives you that ground uh, work that will hopefully become the foundation of your practice. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the thing about the athlete is totally right. The, you, the To do eight times a week, whether that be a musical or a Marlowe or it's, yeah. It is a, it's a, it's a, it's a marathon. Of course it is, yeah. But it's ridiculous to just stop <laughs> for ages uh, and do something else. You know, I mean, no athlete would do that. So uh, there, I think that there is a, a lot of thinking going on along those lines that you know you could accelerate it. And I mean, I think that obviously for dancers it's a, another matter as well because they need to be young and they need to start very young. So a lot of people start training at 16 or, or before that, you know. Um, but for actors, I mean, there, there's room for mature actors and all sorts of people, you know, can, can train as actors, but but they do need to keep their instrument tuned, you know, really, really well tuned and not neglect it. And I think that that's the thing is with actors, you are the instrument. Yeah, sure. So, you yeah. know, where a musician might be able to look after their violin or the, the, the thing that helps them do the thing, as an actor, you are. You well, are the I, I would I would say to them when they're preparing for the exam, look, a, an art person hangs their picture on the wall and an English student hands in an essay, you hang yourself on the wall. Mm. You know, it's you. Uh, and you are the performance, you know, and that's very demanding, really. Yeah. You know, and it, it needs training, uh, very often it needs sympathetic training. I mean, what, what I, I despise more than anything else and I, I have come across it, are teachers who say, well, I suffered when I was being taught, so you're going to suffer too. You know, it's smart to be unpleasant. I, I can't stand it. I'm no. not sure anyone works very creatively, no. positively, fruitfully no. under those conditions. No, but yeah, I've encountered it with these five, uh, you know, particularly through the dance world. You know, oh, I, I learned, to, I had to suffer, so you, you can suffer too. It's <laughs> harder, it's hard enough. Yeah, quite. It's hard enough. Right. We don't need any more of that. It's about nurture, not about not about torture. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, I just sort of think break working out a play in a three week rehearsal process, working out a state that's hard enough. We don't need any of that negativity. Let let's let's push this thing right. up the hill together. Yeah. Um, what are you most looking forward to uh, now? The restrictions are easing. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to actually meeting uh, actors and going resuming my work. Although I'm really, that's how I retired, but resume my work visiting colleges because I do find it very inspiring watching the new young generation. Mm. Um, I'm looking forward to that, but I'm particularly looking forward to the show I'm working on at the moment, which is a Edwardian piece actually, where I, we're celebrating some of the famous uh, actors of the Edwardian era, um, Dr. Chain. Uh, although there is a Shakespeare scene in it, but um, 
yeah, I'm fascinated by the links between people like um, uh, Lena Ashwell and H.B. Irving, the son of Sir Henry Irving, who that incidentally lived in Whitstable near, near where I live. And uh, so I've, and, and J.M. Barry, who, and, and uh, Dorothea Baird, an actress who created the role of Trilby, created the role of Mrs. Darling in Peter Pan. Um, and I've been working to compile this, this, this sort of potpourri of Edwardian theatre, which I'm really looking forward to working with the company on that and uh, hopeful some, something will happen about it. And I'm also enjoying not being chairman of the Marlow Society. <laughs> um, so I can get on with some of the more interesting parts of being interested in Marlow. And my wife, who's a, a genius at reading up all the research on Marlow, keeps my brain going with challenging questions about what do I think about this? And, oh, yeah. So, yeah, there, there's lots to look forward to. And uh, hopefully, Ken, you can act as a bit of a talent scout for us. So, any I'm of those. Happy to do that. Yeah, any of those young actors out there who, you know, we think, yes, this is the next Marlow lead. This is, you know, this is, this <laughs> yes, is, what, well, this I, is what we need. No. This is what we need. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, this is where everything gets a bit strange, Ken. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna hand you over to Gavin for the sixty-second challenge. Oh, fine. Bloody hell! Oh, well, okay. Hello, Ken. <laughs> Hello there. What are you trying to do on this time then? <laughs> well, the sixty-second challenge is a bit. It's sixty seconds where we get to um, let the audience know a little bit more about you. Just some quick-fire questions, off-the-cuff answers. Okay. Um, just a little bit of fun. Um, so no pressure. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to ask you some questions. Yeah. Um, we'll, Ricky, we'll have a clock that'll show us uh, the 60 second countdown. Um, I'll ask you the questions as quickly as I can. If you can answer them as quickly as you can, and we'll count up your score at the end and we'll add you to the leaderboard. Ricky has a horn of dreams uh, and uh, as shown. Uh, oh, oh, no, right, he's not yes. showing anything. <laughs> there it is. All right, all right. <laughs> now, you, <laughs> might, you might recall this, Ken. This was in our production of Edward II. Yes, oh, I do remember. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Bones called it, from babies and God knows what you have. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Marlowe prop, you see. Oh, well, That's, there you go. I'm sure he would disapprove. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ricky will we'll, uh, honk the horn at the end of the 60 seconds just to let us know that it is the end. And um, we'll take your final answer and then we'll add up your score is that all okay ken that's absolutely fine great so um ricky are you ready ken are you ready yes here we go 60 seconds on the clock ken what was the first theater you saw the first theater i saw was a play of um the, the changing guard at Buckingham palace it was boy amazing uh tea or coffee tea uh, if you had to eat one thing for every meal going forward, what would you eat? Uh, oh, sausages. What's your favourite book? Um, at the moment, it's probably uh, David Lodge's Changing Places. If you could instantly become an expert in something, what would it be? Uh, an organist. Beer or wine? Oh, wine. Movies or theatre? Uh, theatre. What qualities do you value in people and to whom you spend time with? Uh, humility and warmth. What are you currently reading? Uh, I'm reading the history of Edwardian England. What's the first career you dreamed of having as a kid? Uh, a teacher. 
Dog or cat? Cat, please. Sweet or savory? Uh, savory. There we go. That's 60 seconds. Time is up. Time is up. The air horn of Mortimer. Uh, Ken, how many do you think you answered in 30, 60 seconds? Oh, gosh. That is, it's part of the test as well. No, no. <laughs> I probably answered about 15 questions. Well, you got 12. You got 12 uh, in the 60 seconds. So, uh, nearly, well, yeah. <laughs> about, about I've there. not slowed up too much then. <laughs> no, no, you've done well, done well. You're definitely not at the bottom of the leaderboard. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> I'm getting an old dodder now, really. <laughs> no, you did well. Thank you, Ken. Such a sport. Thanks so much. It's been lovely to see you, lovely to talk to you. Um, and um, we, we must keep the, the Marlow flame alight and everything yeah. we do, we're going to do. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. A great pleasure. Thanks so much. Okay. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. We'll be back next week with another Spotlight On podcast. Until then, find out how you can get creative and get involved with our year of exploration by checking out our Facebook page, Twitter profile, at Lazarus Theatre. And there's bits and bobs on our Instagram, also at Lazarus Theatre. We've also got lots of links on our social media to the Marlowe Society, so you can find out far more about the Marlowe Society and what they're up to. All the details, of course, can be found on our website, www.lazarustheatre.com. I've been Ricky Dukes. And I've been Gavin harrington Idedra. Until next time, stay safe and stay well. Lazarus Theatre Company is a not-for-profit organisation that relies on the generous support of our friends, angels and principal supporters. If you wish to support this podcast or any of the work Lazarus Theatre Company is doing, you can visit the Lazarus Supporters page on our website, lazarustheatrecompany.co.uk or you can send any amount to paypal.me forward slash Lazarus Theatre. Your support is vital to help secure our future in the coming year. Each and every penny will make a difference. You have been listening to the Spotlight On podcast hosted by Ricky Jukes and Gavin harrington Rodedra, produced by Lazarus Theatre Company. The music you've been listening to is composed by Bobby Locke and is from our 2016-2017 production of the Caucasian Chalk Circle by Bert Holbrook.